The following contains adult language and content. Discretion is advised. This is a special Q&A episode of If the Walls Could Talk podcast. We're answering all your questions about the Edgewater Hospital story. Your hosts are Todd Gans and Stephanie Young. So this was a project that began in August 2019 as a podcast about Edgewater Hospital's history, but it sort of morphed into a history slash true crime theme. And Dr. Rogelio Manulet actually asked us why we chose this topic. That was always a question that I have in the back of my mind, you know, because you were not involved with Edgewater Hospital at all. And, you know, all of a sudden out of the blue sky, you said, I'm going to do this. So, yeah, neither Stephanie nor I worked there. We weren't born there. We didn't have family that worked there. The only connection was that it was at the end of my block, and I moved here in 2007. So the hospital was already closed at that point. And I remember a conversation with a friend of a friend who said she once worked there in the early 90s and that the hospital did some shady stuff there. But it wasn't until years later that I really started to dig into the backstory. I didn't become an official Edgewater resident until 2020, but Todd and I have known each other for a while, and we used to take walks around the old hospital, and we started to do that a little more frequently when demolition picked up in the summer of 2018. And there was so little information about Edgewater Hospital online, like no podcasts, no documentaries, absolutely nothing. So we decided to change that. And I also think this is one of the first times that Todd and I had an idea to do something and the idea wasn't already done. You know, usually we come up with these ideas and somebody's already done something like it. But this was the first time that we had the opportunity to be on the ground floor of this story. And the first time we actually worked together. True. And the first time we did interviews, I'll never forget, we got this question. So if you don't mind my asking, um, why now? Why reopen these wounds now? Yeah, when we started doing this, never did we mean to reopen wounds or bring up bad memories. But the more we dug, the weirder and more disgusting the story got, and the more we understood why that question was asked. And one of the first big interviews that we did resulted in the person that we were interviewing breaking down into tears. And in that moment, these abandoned buildings that are at the end of our block became a little bit more personal. We realized that so many people were born there, were treated there, worked there, their careers started there. And of course, so many people died there. And as you learned in the podcast, some of those were absolutely unnecessary. There was a quote I read somewhere and it said, you know, Edgewater Hospital is talked about for who was born there. That being John Wayne Gacy, Hillary Clinton, and so many Chicagoans, but will be remembered for who died there. And that really touched a nerve with me because it really encapsulates the story there. Um, there were times we nearly called this whole thing off. I remember talking about how after doing a night of interviews, we felt like we just needed to go home and shower because some of these stories were that disturbing. And it, it was not easy for us. And I know it wasn't easy for some of you to share these stories. And another common theme among the employees, like Karen McCarl, was about closure. People think because you worked at Edgewater, you know what, what was, was going on there, but you really did not. That's the bitter taste. I don't know what really happened, as most employees did not. Why did this happen? If we all knew that, we could move on. But I think it still bothers many, many people. 
And keep in mind, this is 20 years after the place shut down. There's still all these unanswered questions about what happened, who was involved, who knew what, and so on. So let's get into some of our listener questions now. This one comes from Ashley, and she asked, Is the fraud that occurred at Edgewater a classic example of what happens when greedy people have power, or is it a symptom of greater issues within our healthcare system? Yes and yes are the answers on that. Short answer is, you know, most hospitals get 40 to 50% of their revenue from Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement. For Edgewater, that number was around 90% of its revenue. So they were purposely targeting senior citizens, whereas most hospitals, that was a part of what they were looking for. Um, You know, they closed their maternity ward in the 90s. They opened detox centers instead and had these senior clinics where they would ship in senior citizens um, from the south side. I will say to Peter Rogan's credit, he did turn the place around financially. By 1991, they had turned a profit, thanks to major cost-cutting, outsourcing, but it was their reliance on this Medicare money that really led them to do all sorts of schemes to fill up the hospital beds. And when Peter Rogan turned the hospital around, that was before any of the funny business even started. The government said that the fraud scheme allegedly started in 1993. That's when they put satellite clinics in public housing on the south side and were sending those seniors up to Edgewater for treatment. Many that were sent there didn't need to be there. And management was also handing out like million dollar loans and not collecting that money. So obviously mismanagement was a big part of its collapse. Christine and Parag Madani both worked at Edgewater, and you heard from them in this podcast as well, but they believe it's a symptom of a greater issue. There's always that pressure to do stuff that, you know, maybe, you know, cut corners that you really shouldn't be. And that, that's what I see in medicine now. It's a different version of Edgewater. The constraints and the pressures on physicians now to do things that, that really is not in the best interest of patients, that needs to be looked at. And um, it it needs to be brought out. It needs to be stopped somehow. You know, medicine in this country is 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 going in a direction which I don't think is as good as it was when you had your own doctor that you knew for 20, 30 years. And I I see it now. It's just too disjointed and disconnected and people are frustrated, profit driven, profit driven. And uh, and even, you know, I don't care what you call these non for profit hospital and for profit. They're all in for the profit. You know, when it, when a doctor makes X amount of money, but the CEO of the hospital makes 20, 30, 40 times that amount with one-tenth the education, something is wrong with that um, that model. And uh, nobody seems to think anything's wrong with it except maybe me. Hi, my name is Allison. My question is, was it a total surprise to employees when the hospital closed? So most people we interviewed had the same answer to that question. No. No, um, because of all the funny business that was going on there. You know, after I left there, I kept in contact with, you know, a few of the people. Everyone was says, well, it's a matter of time before that place closes. You know, when we heard the, the indictments and everything were coming in, it was like, I guess, good. You were like, finally. I guess the only surprise was that there were actually people there that were wearing wires or I guess or, and had the FBI involved. I didn't realize that. And so... That was kind of a surprise, but um, that the hospital closed, that didn't surprise me one bit. They were surprised it took as long as it did because there had been, you know, talk in the neighborhood for quite a while saying that they were like scooping up homeless people and dragging them in to have procedures and whatever else done. 
This question comes from Deneen. Did the hospital have students in its training program when it closed? And if so, what happened to them? Yeah, they did. In fact, Karen McCaro actually had to work at the hospital after it closed to deal with that mess. I actually stayed two weeks after they closed because my last job there was in medical education. So I had to place the interns because we had residents that were with us that when the hospital closed, they had to go someplace. The weirdest situation, too, because they owed money to the people who did the phone system. And because they owed them money, the guy cut the wires. So we had no phone. Wow. So the interns would come down in the morning. They'd charge up their cell phones and come down. And we do it on their phones. And mine. And mine. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. And I, and there weren't that many of them. There were maybe six. But we had to get them placed. Yeah. We couldn't just leave them, you know. And that's why they let me. They allowed me to stay the extra few weeks. And Laura asked, I may have missed it, but did you talk at all about Dr. Barnabas and Dr. Kaliana? I don't remember hearing them mentioned in the podcast. Good news, Laura. You didn't miss it. And yes, they were involved. We just didn't mention them by name in the podcast. We tried to keep things as simple as possible when it came to all of the doctors charged, just because there were so many names. Dr. Kumar Kalyana ran a Southside clinic and was paid to send patients up to Edgewater. Now, he didn't actually work at Edgewater, but he was charged and sentenced to 16 months in prison for his role in the scheme. And Ravi Barnabas was a more curious story because he had roots at Edgewater. He did his residency there in the 1980s, came back in the 90s, was part of the fraud scheme. He went to prison, but did get his medical license back. And as of March 2021, he's still practicing. And you can hear more about this in episode 10. And Deneen actually had another question. She said, other than the doctors and administrators outlined in the podcast, were charges ever filed against any nurses or others complicit in what was happening? It's a good question. There were actually two cases I found. One was a nurse who was paid to recruit patients, which is kind of scary to think a nurse was a patient recruiter, ultimately was charged with taking more than $86,000 in kickbacks to bring people to Edgewater. But she got in trouble for making false statements on her tax returns because those kickbacks she wasn't claiming as income ended up getting probation and a $500 fine. Um, a little more serious, a doctor named Dr. Salvador Vivit, I believe is his name, but he went by Dr. Buddy. So Dr. Buddy was on staff at Edgewater, but also had a clinic. And after a disgruntled partner of Dr. Buddy tipped off the feds to some fraud happening, they raided his clinic. And apparently the FBI asked him to testify against Edgewater Hospital's owner, but he refused. So instead of cooperating, he was convicted of mail fraud and spent seven years in federal prison and was later deported in 2008 to the Philippines. And this leads us to an executive that was charged. He was one of the players in this scheme that has an interesting story. And Todd really wanted to include this in many different episodes. And every time he tried, I was like, this just doesn't quite fit there. So I'm going to step back and give you the opportunity to talk about your pal Clarence Nagelvort. Well, Clarence kind of took over after Peter Rogan at Edgewater in 2001. They let go of his management company, and they were trying to sell the hospital at that point. And there was a quote from him that said they're hoping to return Edgewater to being a respected provider of hospital services. After Edgewater, Clarence ended up as CEO of another Chicago hospital named Sacred Heart. 
and clearly took some of his bad habits from Edgewater with him because he was charged with arranging payoffs to doctors in exchange for referring patients. Sounds pretty familiar, along with his sentence, which, like Peter Rogan, Clarence got 21 months in prison. Now, the scheme at Sacred Heart pretty much mirrored what happened at Edgewater, and that one resulted in charges against nine people. Hey, it's Matt. I'm wondering what became of those tapes the FBI recorded. The FBI actually recorded 923 tapes. Now, we learned from the FBI investigator that we interviewed that not all of those tapes had to do with Edgewater, but with another investigation similar to what was happening at Edgewater. Yeah, we never got the audio to those tapes, but we did have transcripts. And basically, it involved people talking about the scheme. And then the feds used those tapes to kind of flip these players and get them to cooperate. Dr. Rao, for example, was one of those. Um, I'm guessing the grand jury in this case also heard some of those tapes. But what's really strange is that only a couple were actually played at Peter Rogan's trial, and they were played by Peter Rogan's defense team. And those tapes were of Roger Eman and Dr. Rao discussing Rao's contract that he had, and of course the famous tape of Peter Rogan denying that Edgewater paid for patients. Now, the government kind of believes that Peter knew someone was wearing a wire and made this big production and deal out of his denial just in case it was being recorded. Right, because if you're him and your doctor that you're paying is telling you, hey, I used some of the money you gave me to pay another doctor to refer patients, well, that's actually illegal. So Peter would have gone to the hospital's lawyers, even the police, but he didn't. In fact, he told Dr. Rao, if you have any new programs, you can bring them to me. So um, that was interesting. But my pursuit of these tapes really has dragged on almost as long as this podcast, the 20 months I filled out a FOIA request, which is a Freedom of Information Act, um, and that was denied. So I narrowed my scope down to a few tapes. Um, that was well over a year ago. And as of yesterday, March 2021, it still says it's in progress. So I'm going to hold my breath and uh, hope they show up in the next couple years. Hi, Todd and Stephanie. This is Craig from Arizona. Just want to say I've really enjoyed your podcast and it's been very informative. But I have a question for you. Why were you able to interview Peter Rogan's lawyers, but not the government's lawyers? So there were a lot of government lawyers, and we asked pretty much all of them to participate in this podcast, and they all either declined or just did not respond. Now, their silence certainly is pretty odd considering they technically won the case, but I think we can read between the lines with the silence here. Yeah, sometimes saying nothing says quite a bit. This next question comes from Kevin. He asked, whatever happened to Anthony Todd, who ran the Chicago Housing Authority program at Armour Square Senior Housing? So we never discussed Anthony Todd in the podcast. Reason being, he was investigated but never charged. He actually worked for a company called Universal Geriatric Services, and the feds were looking into the relationship between Edgewater and Universal because Edgewater had these two clinics in Chicago public housing buildings, and Universal helped to manage those clinics. But there was someone who made a comment to a journalist, and this article got published, and she said, you know, patients who go to the clinic end up at Edgewater Hospital, whether they need to go there or not. And she wanted an investigation into Edgewater and Universal. And so it led to Peter Rogan making a quote saying he was aware of the allegations, but they were unfounded. Anthony Todd also denied any fraudulent admissions. And then Anthony Todd later sued that woman who was quoted in the article for slander and libel. 
uh, was asking for $20,000, but I couldn't find whether this case was actually tried or settled, dismissed, dropped, whatever. It was a while ago, and the records may not go back that far online. Um, but I did reach out to Mr. Todd for comment and did not get a response. According to his LinkedIn profile, he worked at Universal until 2000 and was marketing for Edgewater Hospital, Michael Reese Hospital, and Lincoln Park Hospital. All three of those hospitals are now closed. You've asked, and we're answering in this special Q&A episode of If the Walls Could Talk podcast. Your hosts are Todd Gans and Stephanie Young. Edgewater Hospital already has John Wayne Gacy attached to its legacy, and then Dr. Kubria and the others charged in the fraud scheme from its later years. And then there were questions about a podiatrist who killed a nurse. Hi, this is Stephen from Wicker Park. I always heard there was an Edgewater podiatrist that killed someone to keep them from testifying. Is that true? And I guess there was a nurse that was murdered by a podiatrist for reporting Medicare fraud. So the doctor's name was Dr. Ronald Mykos. He was a podiatrist in Illinois who's currently sitting on death row. And his attorney said he had a, quote, loose affiliation with Edgewater, but his crimes apparently happened elsewhere. So that's the reason we didn't include his story in this podcast. He was one of the highest billing podiatrists in the state of Illinois, so much so that it triggered an investigation. And then the feds learned he was billing Medicare for procedures he didn't do. And the problem was they were not getting any of his patients to cooperate in the investigation. They really liked him for whatever reason and were kind of protecting him. And he was telling them that the FBI was trying to set him up and he was innocent and asked them to help and gave them instructions on what to say if they were ever questioned. So the feds finally found a woman named Joyce Brannon. She was a former ICU nurse and actually agreed to cooperate. Yeah, she was one of his patients. And when he pleaded with her not to testify, she refused and even told her sister about what was happening. So just before her testimony, this is early 2002, she was found murdered in the basement of a church where she lived. And at the time, she was disabled and in a wheelchair. So a gruesome, gruesome crime. The police found ammunition and a shell casing in his car, and a book titled How to Hide Anything. So a very disturbing case. He was charged, convicted of murder, and sentenced to death in 2005. As of 2021, he remains on death row. And again, we did not add him to the podcast because of that quote-unquote loose affiliation. Hi, it's Jameson from Massachusetts. And my question is, you said Peter Rogan owed millions of dollars. Has he paid it all back? And if not, how much has he paid back? So let me break this down for you. Court documents claim that Peter Rogan didn't voluntarily pay anything back. The last information we have is from 2015. And as of then, the government collected 6 to $7 million of the $64 million they were owed. And Dexia collected about 20 to $25 million out of the $124 million they were owed. But they also spent about $9 million to collect that money. So if we do a little bit of math here, that would mean that they've really only collected about 11 to $16 million. Hi, this is Brittany in Denver. I had a question about Peter Rogan. I don't understand how he only got 21 months of prison time. It seems like he should have gotten longer. So you have to keep in mind that Peter was never charged criminally in the fraud that happened at the hospital. What he was charged with was perjury, and that was related to him lying about an offshore trust account that he claimed he didn't have access to 
that's where the 21 months actually came in. I think he ended up serving just short of that amount. And for reference, Clarence Nagelvoort also got 21 months for his role in the Sacred Heart fraud scheme. So it kind of shows you the odd disparity when it's a white-collar crime versus anything else, just the difference in sentencing. This is Scott Derringer. I would like to say congratulations for making this fantastic podcast. So here's to you. Um, You guys have mentioned before about the Rat Pack. Uh, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and uh, Sammy Davis. Those guys partied hard. So then they came to Chicago and they dried out. And you said they dried out in a part of the Edgewater Hospital. And I'm just wondering if you guys found anything out and what you could tell us. Take care and congrats. We actually kind of covered this briefly at the beginning of the podcast. Edgewater Hospital had these private suites that catered to the wealthy, and we heard stories of people who were vaudeville performers who kind of just checked in to get away from life for a bit. A common story had to do with the Rat Pack also checking into these rooms. So a man named Dr. Riera was one of Edgewater Hospital's longtime doctors. He was kind of the number two guy in the Dr. Maisel era, and his daughter shared a story with us that when Frank Sinatra was in town for a concert, he called up Dr. Riera at Edgewater Hospital, and he needed help, said he had a sore throat. She also said that her mom was in the background of that phone call telling her dad to ask Frank for tickets to the concert that night, but he wouldn't do it. Yeah, so kind of a cool connection there. And Dr. Riera, by the way, he lived to be 100 years old. In fact, sadly, he passed away in 2020. Another element to the story is that a local newspaper used to have a columnist who would report on celebrities that went to Edgewater Hospital. So I guess we could call them the original TMZ. They reported that Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne both visited Edgewater Hospital, and we read that Paul Newman's mother was there, and he would go to visit her. And some people asked about the connection to the mob and Edgewater Hospital. We did hear of a couple stories about Al Capone's boys staying at the hospital, but I think they were just there for regular medical treatment. So this is actually a question that I had. In episode number nine, you heard that Dr. Rogelio Manulet took a brick from the pile of rubble at Edgewater Hospital back home with him. Now, Edgewater Hospital is obviously in Chicago, and Dr. Rogelio lives in Spain. So my question for him was, how did you get that brick back? Did you put it in your carry-on luggage? Did you ship it back to yourself? I have so many questions. I was afraid because this came in the regular luggage, not in the carry-on. As you know, they put all this luggage through x-rays and CAT scans and that kind of stuff. And I said, I'm going to be in trouble. The Guardia Civil is going to ask me what the hell is in that brick, you know, because drug trafficking here in Spain is quite high, especially people coming from Colombia. They bring cocaine on, on bricks. You know, I went through, nothing happened. And I got my brick at home. Yeah, picturing him at baggage claim in Spain, sweating bullets, this cracks me up. Hey guys, Judy from Homewood here. And I'm just wondering why it took so long for the old hospital to be torn down. So a big reason was a global recession that hit in 2008, 2009. There was no building going on here in Chicago for one. One of the other main reasons was there was no one owner. The hospital was in bankruptcy at the time. Well, the short version is red tape. The owner of the hospital was this trust made up of the 250 creditors who were owed money as a result of the bankruptcy. 
So you pretty much had these 250 people who have this huge stake in what happened to this land. And that's kind of mind-boggling. And there was an effort on the part of Dexia, which is this company that officially owned the trust. So you've got like 250 people plus Dexia. And Dexia did try to constantly present ideas to people living in the neighborhood. But again, you've got 250 people who all have a say in what goes on with redeveloping this land because they want their money. And like anything you present to a neighborhood, unless you have an alderman who's going to just rubber stamp it, people have to try to reach a consensus. There was a lot of fighting amongst people in the neighborhood about, do we need more housing? Do we need a green space? I know one of the ideas that was floated past at one point was a senior citizen home for LGBT people. And I do have issues with Alderman O'Connor and how he handled this, but I do think he put forth a good effort to try to find the right solution for that specific issue. Um, another issue was the fact that they did need to clean the land because when you look at the photos that are online, it really looks like they just up and left the building. Everything stayed there. So they needed to, you know, properly take care of cleaning up this land and trying to pretty much demolish the building in a way that it didn't screw everything up. That's journalist Monica Ryda, who covered the story. And she said the creditors collectively were owed over $110 million. So obviously, they wanted to hold out for the best deal. And there was another snag, and that was that the property had over $14 million in unpaid property taxes hanging over it. So it wasn't until 2014 when it sold and a developer paid $3.6 million for the parking garage, and then in a separate deal, paid $3.9 million for all the other buildings. Lorena actually had a follow-up question to that. She said it would be interesting to see how gentrification and racism played into the fact that no one wanted to reinvest in the hospital after its closure. Well, even if you go back to 1988 when the hospital was functioning and they had publicly said, if we don't get a buyer or merger, we're going to close. So at that point, no other hospital group wanted it. And then you fast forward to 2001 when they're looking for someone to save it and they had somebody. Um, the problem was they could not line up financing. So there's a little more to that than, than meets the eye. And it leads us to a question from Anne, which is about the new apartments. She said, I'd love to hear from the people that chose to live in those apartments. It just seems like there would be a lot of bad energy there. Well, if you don't know this already, the three buildings that are left standing have been redeveloped into an apartment complex called Anderson Point. It's the three buildings that face Ashland Avenue, and it kind of looks like one big building, but it is three separate buildings that were added on to one another. We talked with Michael McGuire and Jess Lizarraga, who are now residents there. Uh, people are shocked to know that there are people living here because it seems like one minute it was boarded up and it was dilapidated and um, all the stories with that. One of my favorite things is telling people that I live in a converted hospital. Like, it's kind of the cool thing to say like, oh, yeah, I live in the, like old Edgewater Hospital. And so it's definitely a conversation starter. You know, the reality is it's a beautiful historic building. I have had uh, a chance to look at some of the views on the top floors, and there's no, no other place that gets you this view of this neighborhood. And that coupled with the impeccable work that they've done creating livable space in what was not originally designed to be livable space has been pretty amazing. So I think it's going to just 
continue to add to the fabric of Andersonville. And I think that's really exciting. I think the other piece of it too is that, you know, they really did a great job utilizing all of the like windows in the building. So I have this like beautiful wall of like floor to ceiling windows that I can either keep completely open and it, you know, kind of feels like I'm also outside at the same time without actually enduring the harsh winter cold weather and snow of Chicago. I think the fun thing that is happening right now is as I look out my west side window, I right now I'm looking on a mud pit, which my son really gets excited about. He was wanting to play down in that during the rain, which I would not let him. But thinking about that as a park and thinking about with two kids down at the park, being able to have such in such close proximity, a place where they can hang out and play. And because they go to school in this neighborhood, they can meet their friends and I can have a glass of rosé in my hand and look out the window as they're down there. (laughs) It's kind of nice to know that there's a history here. And I think there's even an episode of like an unsolved mysteries about like a nurse that used to work here, um, you know, that was like, I think murdered or something. And that unsolved mysteries episode that Jess mentioned is the story of Teresita Bassa, who worked at Edgewater Hospital in the 1970s. She was later found murdered in her apartment, not at the hospital, but apparently her ghost is credited with solving the murder. We're going to cover that story in an upcoming bonus episode of If the Walls Could Talk. And Tammy asked the Ginter family, and that's Georgette and Jim, who are the grandchildren of Dr. Maisel, how they feel about the apartments being in place of the hospital. Georgette said it's nice to see new life in the hospital site, but I worry that this apartment complex will further promote gentrification and drive up prices of rents and mortgages in the area. I'm very confident that Dr. Maisel would have liked to have seen this become a hub of healthcare or mental health services for the community. I'm looking forward to the park that is proposed. I'm really excited about new life for that building. That building came into the community to help people live a better life, to get better. You know, the legacy of the hospital up till 1990 was, you know, it was a good reputation and and did great things. And after so many years of sitting empty, to see it provide a different service to the community, you know, where... Families can come together and live and thrive and enjoy that beautiful neighborhood. And I just think they've done a a beautiful job with it. And I'm excited to see the park, which I think will be a great addition over there. I'm happy to see that the facade, um, even though they've they've painted the exterior, um, when you look at some of the plaster work and archways over the windows, they've they've kept that. So you can see that there are hints that it was a vintage building. And um, so I'm really happy with it. This question comes from Deneen. She said, when redevelopment started, what happened to the remaining patient records and other documentation? Yeah, so there are actually laws regarding medical records and how long you have to keep them. In Illinois state law, you have to preserve medical records for 10 years after they are created. And last time I checked, uh, this law still applies even if you close your hospital. So if Edgewater Medical Center created a medical record the day before they closed in 2001, they could have destroyed those records in 2011. And they didn't. And so in 2013, which is 12 years after the hospital closes, WGN does an investigation on the 9 o'clock news, and they let the public know, hey, these medical records with people's sensitive information are sitting in this abandoned building that vandals go into all the time, and that's pretty terrifying. Um, 
a lawyer did get a court order to destroy the records. Um, and I, from what I have read, they were eventually destroyed. But again, you look at how that building was left and chances are they really weren't, you know, thinking into the future with that. So July of 2002, the bankruptcy estate received permission to destroy the medical records that were more than 10 years old. And that would mean anything predating 1993. But more recent records were left in the building. So 2013, that's when WGN-TV ran that story that kind of made this a big deal about all these records still being there on site. It took two more months before the bankruptcy court ordered them to be destroyed. Now, the urban explorers still found medical records in there well past 2013. My assumption is that the people that went in to destroy the records were told that they were all kept in one designated area, and they didn't really account for all of the private practice offices throughout all of the buildings that would have also contained medical records. For example, one urban explorer said he found records in a file cabinet in a closet. And some of the other explorers told us how they found things from the 60s and 70s. So that whole pre-1993 thing, I don't think that was accurate. This question actually comes from Dr. Rogelio Manulet. I think he was just trying to challenge us on this one. He said, did anyone ever tell you about the picture phones that Edgewater had? So there was an article in 1971 about Edgewater installing these picture phones, they called them. And what it was, was you could stand in the lobby and talk into a phone and look into this TV screen and see patients from upstairs who would talk back to you. And it was also something that staff used. People in x-ray or cardiology would kind of share information with one another. But for whatever reason, they were discontinued shortly afterward. And during this past year with the pandemic, iPads and FaceTime really became the only way for people to communicate and see patients that were in the hospital because no visitors were allowed. And this sort of technology was being used in 1971 at Edgewater Hospital. That was 50 years ago. Yeah, way ahead of its time. Rogelio also had another question for us. He said, how much did you cry? (laughs) Uh, A good question. I can say for sure the two of us were crying during the interview with FBI agent Sherry Kuhn. I think putting together the last episode was another one, for me at least. There were a lot of times I was biting my tongue or perhaps tearing up, but those were probably the two main ones for me. I'm guessing you have quite a longer list from what I recall. My list is a little more extensive than yours, yes. I also cried during the Sherry Coon interview. I cried when we heard the Sherry Coon interview back. And then when you were producing the end of episode nine about Rogelio with the brick, you came out into the living room and kind of had tears in your eyes. And I said, what's wrong? You said, go listen to this. And I dare you not to have an emotional response to it. And of course, within about 20 seconds, I was bawling my eyes out. And I have cried every single time that I've listened to episode number nine since then. So that's quite a few times. I also cried no less than 10 times when discussing Roger Eamon, uh, stories about him when we interviewed him, when I had to voice a line about his assistant, how he went and got her a cookie and a soda. For some reason, that one triggered me, and I cried every time I tried to do that one. I also cried when we spoke with the Urban Explorer that went in 150 times, and I am sure that I will cry before this thing is done again. That's a lot of crying, and yet I feel like there's still one or two more times that you have forgotten, which is about a year ago when we first started voicing these, and you were struggling with some of the direction I was giving. Let me preface (laughs) this with, I've been on the radio since I was 16 years old. 
And for lack of a better term, I was a DJ. I talked between songs. That was Taylor Swift. She's got a new album coming out. Pretty casual. I've never used my voice to narrate things. And you were a production director. So basically, you narrated commercials all the time and then coached other people how to do it. So when you were giving me direction... I didn't like being told that I didn't know what I was doing. So it was a little bit frustrating, even though you were right. I definitely cried, walked out of the studio a few times and told you you were being mean. (laughs) I do recall that. And I do recall thinking this is never going to happen. We're never going to get through this if she cries and, and storms out after everyone. The good news is when we left our radio jobs and started recording at our in home studio, I haven't cried once. There you go. Progress. Yes. So let's make sure um, this continues. We have some more questions about the fate of the hyperbaric chamber, whether someone was electrocuted on the roof, as well as whether there could be another Edgewater hospital. And we'll tackle those next. You've asked, and we're answering in this special Q&A episode of If the Walls Could Talk podcast. Your hosts are Todd Gans and Stephanie Young. So a question that ran through our minds as we researched this project was, could there be another hospital with rampant fraud like what was happening at Edgewater Hospital? Yeah, this was something we posed to the healthcare experts, journalists, those who work there and others who work the case. And these are their answers. It would be more difficult, I think, to pull off because the way the reimbursement has changed, we're moving away from a volume of care system to a value-based system. So... It should be a a case where that would be difficult to pull off. There's also fewer hospitals, but it could be going on. Yeah, I do. You know, if the winds are right, I mean, like I said, we have all these regulators and oversight people that come and go and and harass good doctors and stuff just to put on a show. I think that possibility always exists. Especially we live in Southern Illinois now, and I could see that happening in a small town too. Yeah, Yeah, it's less likely in the Chicagoland area because now they're being bought out by big corporate giants. So there are, you know, multi-hospital corporations that there's no one person running the show like Roger Eman and Peter Rogan basically running the show any way they wanted to. That kind of is, is sort of not gone, but it's a lot harder in a corporate setting. But in a rural area where everybody knows everyone and, you know, you could have a hospital administrator that's been here forever and certain doctors have been known for 20, 30 years. And it it has kind of happened here too to you at the hospital you were at and the, they were pressuring you to see patients and cast patients that didn't need cast. I mean, that, that, that happens now at every hospital in this country. People are always going to cheat, but for corruption to be that systemic, I I don't see it happening. I don't know. It's anything's possible, right? I hope that it was a deterrent for other hospitals that that might have considered doing that. Um, I hope that there were changes put into place with the entities that have oversight for hospitals that would cause red flags to be raised when when certain billings came in or excessive amounts of billings or whatever the case you know we we hope to enact a certain amount of change after we conduct these investigations so that there is a deterrent Um, there was a hospital indicted in chicago after edgewater 
but I think that some of those activities might have been going on at about the same time. And um, so, so I don't know. I hope not. I really hope not. I want to think that doctors do the right thing and they admit people to hospitals because they need to be there. But their insurance companies would tell you and people in the know would tell you that there's still a lot of, that might not be to the degree of Edgewater, unnecessary cats, but there's still people that are getting unnecessary and unneeded care. It might not be criminal. So there could be another Edgewater out there, but it would be more difficult to pull off. Let's hope it would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So you hear all that, and then you read this article from December 2020, and the story said a $66 million settlement was reached in favor of more than 260 patients who claimed they were victims of malpractice at the hands of a Northwest Indiana doctor. This doctor allegedly performed unnecessary cardiac procedures and device implantation. So this is all happening not too far from Edgewater, and it's kind of scary So you think, okay, maybe there won't be another Edgewater hospital, but certainly there are doctors who are out there carrying out some of what you heard happening at Edgewater. I'm going to pose a question to you, and of course, I'll answer it as well. But who are you the most upset that we didn't get to interview for the podcast? Um, I would say there's two parts to this answer. The one that pops into my head is that we did have this chance encounter with Peter Rogan very early on in a grocery store. He's buying wine. And we wanted to approach him and ask some questions. And in my mind, I thought, if we're going to do this, we need to do this right. And I expected he'd give us an opportunity to talk. And we reached out and never heard anything. So now in my mind, I'm like, you should have just asked him a question then. So that's part of it. The other part is that no one from the government wanted to talk with us. We talked about this earlier, how they actually won the civil case against Peter but no one wanted to talk about it. So it's very curious and almost um, baffling as to why they don't want to talk about it. Were either of those your answers? Surprisingly, no. Oh. My answer is that we weren't able to connect with anyone that was closely associated with Dr. Kubria or Peter Rogan. When we started this podcast, we kind of laid out the four major players. The first was Dr. Maisel, who passed away in 1980, so we obviously weren't going to be speaking with him. But we did have the privilege of speaking with his grandchildren to kind of put that story together. The other was Roger Eman. You heard directly from him. And then the other two major players would have been Dr. Kubria, who passed away in prison, and then Peter Rogan. Now, we reached out to a ton of people that were connected to those two. No one responded. We also gave them the opportunity to, you know, not talk about the bad stuff, to talk about those people as human beings, those people as family members, friends. And we kind of were going to let them set the parameters of what they wanted to talk about. And no one wanted to do it. So I think I'm the most disappointed and bummed out that we didn't hear from someone that was closely associated with the two of those people. And for me, it makes me appreciate Roger and the fact that he did talk, even if he did set up parameters about what he wanted or didn't want to talk about, he still talked. And I respect that greatly. Hey, Todd and Stephanie, this is Kinsley from Downers Grove. I'm a huge fan of Grey's Anatomy and recall an episode with the hyperbaric chamber. So I thought it was cool that Edgewater had one too. You posted a photo of it outside the hospital when they removed it. But what happened to it after that? 
I think Kinsley and I might be the only two people still watching Grey's Anatomy, but I too still watch the show and also remember a recent episode with a hyperbaric chamber. So I'm happy to answer this question. So you saw that we posted a photo of the hyperbaric chamber in a pile of rubble outside the hospital after it was removed. Now, what happened to it after that? I reached out to the architect in charge of redevelopment and the hyperbaric chamber has a disappointing ending. It was used for scrap metal. The Coast Guard actually wanted it, but they were going to have to pay to have it removed, and they didn't want to do that, so unfortunately, the hyperbaric chamber has a pretty sad ending. This question comes from Gladys, and I think it actually came from a few other people too, but she said, I believe there was a kid that died by electrocution on the roof after it was closed. Do you know what happened with him? So yeah, this story happened in 2011. There were two 15-year-old boys, and they had gotten onto the roof of the building, And there was a transformer up there that apparently was still in use. And one of them came into contact with them and was electrocuted and was sent to the hospital in critical condition. The other was kind of hit by debris and was in good condition. Um, I don't know what became of them because they were both minors at the time. I did find a lawsuit that one of the two teenagers families filed it was settled in 2018 i did reach out to him for comment i did not hear back a lot of times what happens with these is you sign non-disclosures so you don't talk about it that might be the case here but i did not find any confirmation of somebody dying i did find a related incident of somebody falling in an abandoned hospital nearby but not at edgewater so i've actually got another question for you and like the last one i'll of course answer it as well But what is the most surprising thing that you've learned during this process? I think kind of like in the podcast where you think the end is Peter was on the hook for $64 million in that civil case. And you think this is where the story ends. But instead, two weeks later, he takes off to Canada and stays there for nine years and has his sister allegedly funneling money to him um, to pay for his penthouse that he's living in. And the fact that he eventually comes back and, quote unquote, faces the music and it's, you know, 21 months in prison, had to pay back these millions of dollars, really hasn't uh, based on the last court record. So it seems like at the end of the day, he got away with it. He eventually, you know, served some time, had to pay back some money and yet walks around a free man today. So it's kind of a slap in the face. Um, and, and was surprising to me that it almost seemed like they stopped trying to get him or to bring him back or just kind of threw their hands in the air. Like, we've never dealt with something like this. We don't know what to do. I think for me, it would be finding out what Roger was up to today. Because when we started our research for this project, all we did was read articles that were online. And none of those are very flattering towards Roger. Now, when we started interviewing people... They had a completely different opinion, said he was the nicest guy they'd ever met, and they believed that he took the fall. Then we had the opportunity to meet him, interview him, and find out what he's up to today, and that's probably what surprised me the most because you see these other people that were charged in the scheme. Some of them are still practicing medicine, which is crazy, and then you've got Peter Rogan walking around a free man, and Roger actually took a second chance and did something with it, and he's helping people today. Not blaming anybody for the mistakes that he made. He accepts full responsibility for that, but he's actually making something out of a second chance. And I thought that was very surprising. Yeah. 
and giving other people that second chance that he was given many years ago. I also found out something surprising this past week. Not necessarily shocking, but surprising because I'd never heard it yet. There was actually another pool. Did you know that? I thought I heard that, but I don't remember much about it. What? When was that? So the indoor pool on top of the Caden building was built in the 1970s, but apparently sometime in the 50s or 60s, there was another nurse's residence building that was a little smaller, and they had an outdoor rooftop pool on that building. It had tiki torches, it had lounge chairs around it, and then once they built the Caden building and made that nice indoor pool, they kind of discontinued the use of the outdoor pool. But I guess when you were in the other pool, you could kind of look down and see the remnants of that other pool that was there. So Dr. Maisel loved his pools. It just continues that hotel theme, you know, a hospital that had a pool with tiki torches. Unheard of. A few other questions before we wrap up. How many buildings made up the hospital campus? There were nine buildings that once made up Edgewater Hospital or Edgewater Medical Center. I actually have an aerial photo and a map, and I can post that on our social media and website so you can just see how big the whole hospital campus was. Another question, what happened to the alderman whose wife sold all those homes on the old hospital property? Yeah, so he's been around a while. He was elected in 1983, I believe, and was voted out in 2019 after 36 years, actually lost to a relative newcomer to the Chicago political scene. But yeah, he had quite the run, and unfortunately for him did not see the complete rebirth of the Edgewater Hospital. So we also got this question quite a few times, a lot in the beginning. Bruce Japson was the first person to ask this question. An urban explorer asked this question, and a lot of other people have inquired since then. And I see that you changed the answer on the script here because it was not this answer earlier when I looked. But the question is, are you two married or a couple? The original answer said, I guess. <laughs> Well, I'd like to talk to whoever typed that original script and wrote, I guess, because indeed, yes, we are a couple, not married, but we are dating and live together and have managed to do this project together and we haven't broken up. It is quite an accomplishment, but yeah, not married, but we have been together for quite a while. Also have, who is the voice guy at the beginning and end of the podcast? And we'll let him tell you who he is. Hello there. My name is Todd A. Wilson. I am a voiceover artist, a seasoned broadcast professional, a narrator, and a voiceover actor. Any chance I could hire people named Todd, I'm in. I'm surrounded by too many Todds. Help me. You're welcome. This one's, I'll leave this one for you. Do you think the hospital is haunted? So we actually covered this in our bonus history episode. The short answer is this. When it was still a hospital, people had plenty of stories of things that happened there that could be considered haunted. After it closed and was converted into apartments, we haven't heard of any, but we did take the Chicago paranormal investigators around the perimeter of the building in 2019, and they did not catch any paranormal activity. If you'd like a more in-depth answer to this question, check out the bonus episode titled Edgewater Hospital History. And as we roll into our final question, I think we need to take just a second to thank everyone who has helped bring this story to life. The amount of people that have given us their time, that have shared photos with us, that have given us Edgewater Hospital trinkets, the list goes on and on. And we are beyond grateful to every single person that has helped us with this project. Yes, yeah, so many people have thanked us for putting the story out, but we could not have done it without the help of all of you. Whether you were interviewed, whether um, you helped behind the scenes, whether you supported us on Patreon, again, our heartfelt gratitude to you for everything you've done to help us 
bring this thing over the finish line. And I think one of our favorite things about this project has been all of the new friends we've made. And once the pandemic is over and we can all get together, we're certainly excited to meet all of you in person. Yeah, so many of you we've met yet have never seen. So we're looking forward to that. And a question we asked everyone we interviewed for this podcast was this. If the walls of Edgewater could talk. What do you think they would say? If the walls could talk, it would tell a story that is unfortunate in American healthcare. A few bad apples took this place down. A lot of people's careers started there, and it was because of Dr. Maisel. The hospital was founded by a benevolent benefactor. We were medical and surgical pioneers. The lives that were saved, the children that were born there, before the economic and moral collapse. They would say, please, somebody stand up, stand up for these patients, and poor Dr. Maisel's and, and his legacy. That legacy is ruined long after his life's work. I think they would speak up for the employees that were honest. I think it would probably disgust you if you were a fly on the wall. The greed and incompetence destroyed such a good place. To see those kind of things come apart, it hurts quite a bit. You know, like, how did we get here? Bilking patients and charging for services that they actually never really rendered. We tried to care for the people in our community. The hospital really didn't do anything wrong. The people who were running it are responsible for the misconduct. Those people would ultimately choose greed over patient care. In the days of Peter Rogan, oh my gosh, they'd probably roll over in their graves. What the heck happened here? If those walls could talk, they would be very sad seeing it go from such a classy place to a place run by crooks, murdering crooks at that. The only remembrance that they have is the greed of a few and not the good of so many. Learn more on our website, ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast.com. Music in this episode comes from the YouTube Audio Library. Suspended in a Dream by Dmitry Belichenko and Lynn Publishing is used under license from NeoSounds. This episode was written by Todd Gans. If the Walls Could Talk podcast is produced by Buckletown Productions, LLC. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.